turn in our Bible if you have your uh, scripture you want to read with us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll read it and pray and let you be seated. Uh, I'm just entitling this Reconciled to God. It's a word that Paul used a lot. He used the word reconciled or reconciliation. And uh, in verse 17, very familiar verse, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Notice it says all things. And something that, that, that I want you to see is in verse 18, he's going to tell us about what these all things are. He said all things would become new. And in verse 18, he says now all things are of God. In other words, God's the author of this. This is not because of us that we've done something and God's responding to us. This is initiated by God. How many knows God's the great initiator? So all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And then he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. How many knows that everybody in here is in the ministry? We're all in the ministry. Verse 19, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. I don't know how this passage eluded me for so many years, but it did. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. How was he doing that? He was not imputing. The word imputing there is a uh, accounting term. It's an, uh, it means to take an inventory of. So God was not taking an inventory of their trespasses or their sins or our sins. Isn't that amazing? So if God's not keeping a record of your sin, then how in the, what could he be mad about? C come on, if he's, not, if he's not keeping a record... Uh, then what could he be angry about? And then it says that he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. And now, that, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God was pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That, that's what God, that's the message. That's what God has told us to do. That's the message to preach is to tell this world that God is not angry with you. That God's already reconciled the whole world to himself. Now all you have to do is be reconciled to God. And how do you do that? By believing in Jesus and his sacrifice and his finished work on the cross. That's all you have to do. And how, how, do, how did that happen? Verse 21, for he made him who knew no sin, had no relationship, has never known sin, ne ne never known a sin, never has any, 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 anything to do with sin. Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He made him to be sin for us. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Can you say amen? amen. Colossians chapter 1, 19, 20, 21. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And look in verse 20. And by him to reconcile all things to himself. Reconcile how many things? To himself by him. Notice the capitals here. It's by Jesus. God is reconciling all things to himself by him, by Jesus, whether things on the earth, things in heaven. And look at this word. Having made what? Peace through the blood of his cross. What is it that brings peace between us and God? It's the blood of Jesus on the cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now... He has reconciled. Notice that it keeps talking about reconciliation is a past thing. It's not something God's going to do. It's something that God has done. Remember the announcement that you only hear really preached at Christmas? 
that, that angelic announcement in Luke 2 where he said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. That wasn't men getting along peacefully because they've never gotten along peacefully. There have been wars all the time. God was saying the war is over between me and man. And God said, I'm declaring peace. And it's peace and goodwill, goodwill toward men. And what was going to bring that peace? The birth of that baby in that manger who would save our souls from sin. Can you say amen? amen? Father, we do love and thank you for your word and for your grace. This is abundant. Where sin abounds, grace does that much more. Super, hyper abound. We give you praise for that. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. You can be seated. I just, in Isaiah, Isaiah, great prophet, I didn't give me verses, I don't know if I have time to throw them up, but it doesn't matter, but in, Isaiah's prophesying on behalf of God, and in chapter 52, he says a very familiar, I'm just extracting one little statement he made, he says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them who, who bring good tidings, or bring good news, and this is what he says, and he said, they will proclaim peace, and then he says again, glad tidings of good things. And, uh, and then he also says, who proclaims salvation. So I want you to see the kind of the chronology here. So in, in 52 now, in Isaiah 52, he's prophesying about this peace that would come, about this new covenant. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah, the prophet, starts out in verse 1 kind of like a news reporter on scene. And he says, who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord extended? In other words, who, I'm gonna, he said, I'm going to tell you something, but nobody's going to believe it. It's going to be too good for your ears your ears hear it you're not going to believe it but he began to prophesy about the messiah and all of chapter 53 is about jesus and it's specifically about his crucifixion on the cross and what he would suffer in verse 5 he said he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities but then it says this the chastisement for our peace the king james says the new king james for our peace the chastisement that he endured was to do what bring peace for us peace between what peace between us and god what I've just got through reading to you in Colossians. In other words, his chastisement would bring peace between us and God. And it says that chastisement was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So now chronologically we move over into 54th chapter. And this is where Chuck was getting in my sermon. Verse 9, if y'all can put that one up, that'd be great. Isaiah 54, 9. This is what God says about this. He said, this is like the waters of Noah to me. How I many know that's a real big deal? The flood was a huge deal. Okay? And God said it's like that to me. That this that I'm going to talk about, God said, is like that. It's like the floodwaters of Noah to me. And God said, because as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, God said, just like that, I have sworn that I will not be angry with you nor rebuke you. I grew up, I know how Chuck was raised, and I'm so encouraged. I, don't, I know there's many... <laughs> It, it took us, that's why we probably at the age we are, it, take us, it took us that long to, to, to get, and I don't mean people had a diabolical intent to mislead us. I believe they had good intentions doing the best they knew. And we're all a product of our environment, and if we're not careful, we just simply repeat what we've heard. But, but what we have here is God saying that I'm not angry with you, nor will I ever be angry with you. And this is what he says in verse 10, for the mountains shall depart, the hills be removed, 
But my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of what? See that word keeps coming up? Of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. So God says until the mountains are removed and the hills are no more, God says my kindness will never depart from you. And yet many of us were raised up in church to think that God was perpetually angry at us. That he was not only angry with us, he was displeased with us, that we were out of fellowship with him, that we needed to do something to get right with God, and that, that, that that's how it was with God. And, that's, and we wonder why people stay out of the church and run from God instead of to God. And I remember, I remember as an evangelist being in, in certain churches, and some churches were worse than others. I remember being in one particular church. I would, had run probably a revival there every year. And, and I, it sounds like an exaggeration, but I assure you it's not. Every time that I would go there to start a revival at this particular church, there would be a guy that would give a message in tongues, and then he would interpret it. Nothing wrong with that. We believe in that. I just didn't believe in what he said God was saying. Because the message was that God was coming with judgment, and he was angry. And, you know, basically if you didn't you know, turn, you were going to get killed before the service was over. And, and that happened once, and then I went back a year later, it happened again. And I, and I even mentioned to the pastor, I said, I mean, that guy needs, somebody needs to give him coffee in the morning before he comes to church because he's angry about something. But just because you're angry don't mean God's angry. Just because you feel anger towards people doesn't mean that God feels anger towards people. Now, God said, there was a time that I was angry with you. In Isaiah 54, he says, in the verses above that I didn't read, he says, I was angry with you for a moment. For a moment. But God says that I'm, I, I, I'm not angry with you, uh, and ne neither will I ever rebuke you. Somebody says, the Lord has rebuked me. No, he didn't. That's your own conscience maybe rebuking you. I, I don't have time to get in this. People say, well, the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin. No, the Bible says he convicts the world. Of, of their sin of, because they don't believe in Jesus. But the Holy Spirit, which is God, can't be convicting you of sin because I just read for you this morning that God don't keep a record of your sin. So what's he convicting you of? Y'all don't shout while I'm preaching good. But it's important that you understand the word reconciliation. And, and most of the time when we hear that word, we think of it in terms of marriage. And Paul even used it like that in 1 Corinthians 7. He talked about uh, people that was, you know, going through a separation or a divorce and for them not to divorce and to be reconciled back to one another. And so a lot of times when we hear the word reconciliation, we think about people, you know, marriage. We think about people being, and that's, and that's appropriate. But when Paul was writing in 2 Corinthians 5, he, he's not talking about husbands and wives. He's talking about us being reconciled to God and what it would take for God in other words, to reconcile, he says, the world to himself and to bring us back in relationship to, to a holy God. And, and, and most of the church, listen to me, most of the church gets our core problem wrong. I mean, uh, don't do this now, but you can actually, in other words, if you was to take the phrase and type in uh, on Google, uh, rotten to the core, you're, I mean, you're going to be inundated with, with examples of that, with people, with, with even sermons and stuff like that. But, but. Type in the words rotten from the core and you won't find anything. And the problem is, see, we, we think sin is something exterior out here that God was dealing with. No, the problem was not just with, see, we, we think the problem was we was lying, cheating, cussing, stealing, fornicating or whatever. And that was the issue. But that was not the issue. When, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, God didn't say that in the day that you eat of the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day that you eat of it, I'm going to be really ticked off at you, and you're going to need to come and beg me to forgive you. How many knows God didn't say that? What did God say would happen? 
He said, in the day that they eat of that tree, of that forbidden fruit, what would happen? He said, you shall surely what? Die. So the issue is not the sin. The issue is the death that resulted from the sin. Now, in, in our case, uh, sin, you say, well, why do we sin? And even as believers, sometimes we still sin. Why do we sin? Why, why is sin, sin an, an issue even in the lives sometimes of believers? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that, but, 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 but we're not trusting in God. I mean, I was so amazed what he was saying. And that's why I've gone to great lengths around here to preach. And you go back on the podcast and read or listen to the sermon and even stuff that we've put out on, in blog form. But that sin is a noun. Grace is a verb, but sin is a noun. And, and most throughout the, all the Bible, sin is a noun. You remember what a noun is, right? It's a person, place, or thing. And that's the truth. The, 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 the New Testament book that sin is mentioned more than any other book is the book of Romans. And out of 39 times that sin is mentioned, only one time is it a, is a verb, an action. When Jesus went to the cross, he didn't die for your actions. He didn't die for your lying, your cheating, your fornication. He died for the entity called sin. When John pointed at him and said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin, not sins, plural, the sin of the world, that's a noun. That's a noun. Uh, why is that important? It's extremely important that you understand that. The first time the word sin appears in the Bible is after Cain has murdered Abel. And, and, the first, and, and who uses the word sin for the first time in Scripture? God does. And God goes to, to Cain and he says that sin crouches or lies at the door. He said he makes it, a, he makes it into a, like a personal pronoun. He pers personifies it. He, it's a noun. In, in the Hebrew, it is a noun. And God said sin crouches, one translation says, at the door. And it's desire. The King James says his desire. For King James, James lovers, his desire, he desires to have you. He said, but you must overcome him. You must overcome it. Sin is that force. Let me tell you something that you and I have never seen. You've never seen sin. You've never seen sin. You don't, you've never seen sin. You can't see sin. You've never seen God either. You believe in him, right? You haven't seen God. You believe in God. You haven't seen faith. You can't see faith. You can see people moving in faith. But you can't see faith itself. Faith is the substance of things, so forth. The evidence is not seen. There's things like that. You understand, sin is not me stealing. You say, well, he sinned. Yeah, I sinned, but you didn't see sin. What you see is take me, you saw me take something that belonged to me, which is a theft. But the reason that there is sin, the Bible says sin, I'll read it in a moment, sin entered into the world and death by sin. See, sin had to enter this world. Sin wasn't part of this world, wasn't part of God's designs. But sin entered the world, and then it says what? And death through sin. See, the issue, our core problem is not that we sin. Our core problem is that we're dead. Listen to me. That we're dead. Now, in the garden, sin brought death. God said in the day that they uh, ate of the tree, they would what? They would die. And so another, and for Adam and Eve, when they sinned, then that sin resulted in death. But for you and I, sin comes after the death because we are born in the likeness of Adam. That's what it says in Genesis. So, so we're, we're, it doesn't negate that we were created in the image and the likeness of God, but we were now, since Adam sinned, we're a product of that genealogy. Are you with me? You didn't pray, you didn't pray to be a sinner. And, and in the church world, you grew up and you say, well, somebody does something wrong, and, and so then you see them do something wrong, and then you call them a sinner. 
But in, in Romans 5 and 19, God says that we were made sinners. That means born. The word made. God made man. God made woman. So you were born a sinner. So the reason you sin is because you're a sinner, and that's what sinners do. Sinners sin. And where this started is you were born that way. So you were made, born. Are y'all following me? So you were born a sinner, therefore you sin. Because you were born a sinner. You're not a sinner because you sinned. This is important. But you sin because you were a sinner. And the reason you sinned is because on the inside of you, you're spiritually dead to the things of God. I don't believe like some people teach that you don't have, that before you're born again, that you don't even have a spirit. If you didn't have a spirit, according to what I read the Bible, you couldn't breathe. Okay, I mean, spirit and soul are intertwined together, and when that departs, you depart. So men have a spirit, but they're just spiritually dead. Paul called it dead in trespasses and sin. And so you're dead to the things of God. I believe man has a spirit before he's born again. That's why he desires the occult. That's why he goes after witchcraft. He goes after all these spiritual new age and all that kind of stuff. He, he has a spirit man, but that spirit man that he has is dead to the things of God. Paul said when you get born again, your spirit now is alive unto God and dead to sin. Total opposite. And so when you get born again, your spirit becomes alive to God. You become attracted to the things of God. You desire the things of God. If you say you've been born again and you don't desire the things of God, then you don't, you've not been born again. But when you're born again, when your spirit's been made alive unto the things of God, you desire the word of God. You desire the fellowship of God's people. You desire to praise and worship God. That, that's an onboard, inboard, uh, intrinsic desire you have on the inside of you. But you got, you got to understand that, that, that he says in that verse in Romans 5, 19, that, that we were made sinners. And if we were made sinners, and he, he does the comparison that when you're born again, you're made righteous. It, it doesn't take me any strength or energy to convince somebody that they're born sinners. And the church has, a, has an unhealthy, unholy fascination with sin. And for most of the church in America, in my opinion, it is really based on sin and behavior. And the church teaches more about people's behavior. And they, it's, it's behavior modification. They address behavior and, and they don't address the belief system. You will never change a person's behavior until you address their belief system. There's a good uh, brother that I hear preach every now and then that has this kind of favorite saying. And uh, so we'll give him kind of credit for it. But, but right believing equals right living. Foreign guy, y'all know what I'm talking about? And uh, so when you believe correctly, then you will start living out of that belief system. You can address a person's behavior, and they can, they can with flesh and blood, try to, to, to strain to change their behavior, but it won't last because the core problem hasn't been dealt with. The core is what we believe. It's our belief system. And so the, the problem in, in, in the guard was not sin. See, now, when, when, when people get saved, most of the part, they, they think that sin is the issue. Sin was a big issue. It was a terminal issue. But, and so that's why Jesus came, to deal with the problem of sin. For the wages of sin is, but the gift of, the gift of God is, notice it don't say forgiveness. Now, see, this is what makes people mad, and they send me hate mail, okay? Here goes again. Get ready for the inbox and get ready for the delete button. But this, I don't know why it angers Christians so bad. 
It angers them. But sin is not the issue between you and God anymore. Now, you go to the average church and you say, well, you know, somebody's come down and say, well, Brother Ella, you know, I want to get saved. And I used to do this. I'm not, I used to do this, okay? But it's wrong. We say, well, I want to get saved. First thing you do is tell you, bow your head, close your eyes, and say the sinner's prayer. None of that's in the Bible. None of that's in the Bible. And the first thing they talk about, say, I want to get saved. First thing they talk to you about sin. Well, you need to bow your head, close your eyes, confess your sin. And then well, let, me, let me just lead you into prayer. And they go, you know, dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I need a Savior. I mean, there's none of that in the Bible. Some of you right now are looking at me with that religious weird look. And you must be first-timers today. So right now you think I'm preaching heresy. So let's go to the Scripture. Don't have time to unpack all that, but Romans 10, 9 and 10. I don't care what church you go to, everybody knows that's about salvation. Everybody claims that those verses is about people getting saved. And that's what Paul's writing about. And, and, and so in salvation, he says, if we believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and we confess, notice the word confess. When you say the word repent or confess to an average Christian, they're immediately, their next thought sin. If we played word games and I said, I'm going to say a word, and you say the first word that pops in your mind, if I said confess, they go sin. If I go repent, they go sin. And neither one of that has to do with sin. Neither one of that has to do. Repent is metanoia, the Greek word that means change your thinking. The word confess is homo logo, homo logos, homo same logos word, say the same thing God says about his word. Stop saying what the church has taught you, religion has taught you, and start agreeing with God. And what happens when you get born again is you're no longer a sinner, although the church is dependent on, and I don't mean to be mean at churches, I'm just saying we've got to correct this stuff. I don't mean to be, uh, you know, like I know everything now, I'm still learning. But I'm telling you this, I am not a sinner saved by grace, and I never swallowed that one. You're telling me that I'm saved now, but I'm still left a sinner? What good was salvation? I mean, what good did it do then? If I'm still just a sinner saved by grace, you, that's not your identity. You may sin, but that's not your identity any longer. It's, you're not good at it anymore. You're not a pro like you used to be. You could just do it without thought, but you, could, you can't do it without thought now. You know? Because you've been born again. You've been made alive unto God, to the things of God. That's not who you are. That's not your identity. That's made me. But, you know, the world will, will put a stamp on you where you're a drunkard. You're an alcoholic. You're a drug addict. You're the, you know, you're blind Bartimaeus. You think his mama's got blind Bartimaeus on his birth certificate? But they'll throw that blind in front of your name and then they'll just label you. That's what you are. That's not what you are. That's not what you are. So you've got to understand that your identity now is you're not a sinner. And you say, well, you talk about this a lot. I'm going to talk about it every Sunday. For the rest of my life, I'm going to tell people about the grace of God. I'm going to tell people about the grace of God. Because this is the message that God said that I won't preach, is to tell this world that I, myself, am the initiator, and I have reconciled the world, not just folk in church. I did it. I said the war is over. I said I have the peace now. And I, in my wrath and anger that was for a moment that was on sin, I'm going to take care of that issue because I'm going to forgive the whole world. And see, this is where to get mad. God has forgiven the world of sin. So therefore, when you come to God to receive salvation, like in Acts 16 in the Philippian jail, when the jailer comes to Paul and says, listen, guys, it doesn't get any clearer. I just sat this week on, on the beach with a guy that was raised in wholeness like I was. And, and, and everybody else had gone into the room, and I was sitting there with a, a friend of one of my sons that he, he had came. And so he brought it up. So I didn't just dive on him. <laughs> but he brought it up. 
And uh, I, I knew everything he was going to say before he said it. I, I even stopped him a couple times and said, let me finish your sentence. And he was just, he's, and it's so hard to unlearn all that stuff. And he was raised in, in all this, you know, legalism. And, and we sat out there for two hours. My wife said when I got back up, she said, I knew when I saw you leaning in and getting your face right there close on it, I knew you was talking about the Bible and all. Because that's what I'm passionate about. That's what I'm passionate about. That's what I'm on the earth to tell people about. And, 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 uh, and he wanted to talk about it. But so, it's just, it's like trying to untangle a fishing reel that's gotten this. <laughs> it, takes, it takes a while to untangle that stuff, man. And he is so tangled up in all of that. And so we couldn't, we couldn't get it all worked out in two hours. But, but uh, I, believe he's, I believe he's a little better. And even he had a hard time swallowing some of this that I'm telling you. I said, God's not angry with you. God, God, God's not angry with you. Sin's not the issue. When that Philippian jailer said to Paul, what must I do to be saved? Don't you think that, that, don't think that Paul knew how to get saved? Don't you think he knew how to tell people and the Holy Spirit's writing the word of God through him? Notice he didn't say, bite your hand, close your eyes, repeat after me. Notice he didn't say, let's say the sinner's prayer. And, he, and the word sin never appears in, in Romans 10, 9 and 10 about salvation. That if you believe God raised you from the dead, you know, and, and you confess Jesus, confess that, that God raised him from the dead, and that Christ is Lord, then you're saved. Period. The word sin never even is mentioned. And then the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? The word sin's never mentioned. Paul really screwed up, didn't he? Pardon me, but he really screwed up. He should have told that guy to bow his head, close his eyes, and confess his sin. Why didn't he tell the guy to confess his sin? And why does the church do that? If Paul didn't do that, why do we keep perpetuating that? Why don't we just do what Paul did? It seemed to work. That guy's whole house got on fire for God and got saved. Because Paul said it's not. He, Paul said this. The answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Here's the answer. Believe upon the Lord Jesus, and thou shalt be saved. See how simple that is? Why didn't you mention sin? Because sin ain't got nothing to do with it, because sin's already been dealt with. Now, either Jesus did what he came to do, and when John the Baptist pointed and said, Behold, look at the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And to believe that you have to bow your head and confess your sin means that you don't believe Jesus did what he did. Jesus should have said it's almost finished. It's about half finished. It's about three-fourths finished. No, Jesus said it is finished. And he wasn't a liar. He finished it. There's only one thing that causes forgiveness, and that's bloodshed. And if, and if people are running around not forgiven, then we've got to wait on Jesus to come back and shed more blood. Because you're not forgiven because you cry. The brother I was talking to, he said, well, if you're remorseful and all, the Lord will forgive you. I said, remorse, i got to do it. Now, now, there is worldly sorrow. The Bible, Paul mentions that, in case you're some scholars out here. And there's worldly, there's worldly uh, sorrow. That, that, that doesn't do anything. That, you're just sorry you got caught. Uh, there's godly sorrow that leads to what? What does it say? You can say it. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. It, it leads you to start thinking differently about sin. The reason you need to think differently is because it's been dealt with. And so i got to get off of this, but the issue is not sin. And I know right now some of you, if you just, you know, well, I know in the Bible it says, and that's where this guy pointed me. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that says, you know, if we've confessed our sins, he's faithful and just forgive us our sins, cleanse us all unrighteousness. That's the only verse you've got. And that don't mean what you think it does. Because I can give you 20 verses that show forgiveness is past tense. Forgive others as Christ has forgiven you, Paul said. 
Over and over he says forgiveness. When, when, when Peter went to the Cornelius' house in Acts 10, when the Holy Ghost did, the Holy Spirit fell upon him mightily was when he made this statement. It says when, he, when Peter had spoken that, what did he say? He said, you're all forgiven. And when he said that, the Holy Spirit, I said, if you just believe, you're all forgiven. The Holy Spirit fell upon him. He's writing to people in 1 John who, who read the verse above it. They say they have no sin. They say sin don't exist. And by the way, for, for those that want to quote that verse, if you want to be true and accurate to Scripture, 1 John 1 and 9, when it says, if you're faithful just to confess your sins, it's not, it's not a plural there, added by the translator, and it is a noun. So what are you confessing? Even if you were to try to confess about 1 John 1 and 9, you're confessing the entity of sin, not the action you performed. See how messed up that is? I mean, that's the truth. That is the absolute truth. But he's writing to people who were called Gnostics. We know this from history. K-N-O-S-T-I-C-S, I believe. But they say that sin don't, I don't remember, they said sin don't even exist. There's no such thing as sin. Because really you can't see sin. You can see what people do, but you can't see sin itself. So they said sin doesn't exist. It doesn't even exist. Paul said if you say that sin don't even exist, you make God a liar. Because that's why Jesus came, is to pay the sin debt. Pay the penalty of sin. So when you run around and say there is no sin, I don't know anybody dumb enough to say that sin don't even exist anymore. And that nobody's ever, I never sinned because sin don't even exist. And that's just something y'all made up. I ain't never met nobody like that. But John did. And if John did mean that you've got to confess your sins in order to be forgiven, then in chapter 2 he goes schizophrenic because he tells you there you, you, you have been forgiven. So it can't be both ways. So he's writing to people who say that sin is not even a thing. And God says sin is a thing, and that's why I sent my son. Because if sin's not a thing, then you're saying that I'm a liar. And, and he says if you confess, say what, the same thing I say about sin, that it does exist. And you confess that sin is real, then he is faithful and just to forgive you of sin, all nouns, all nouns, check, see if I ain't right. And then to cleanse you from how much unrighteousness? How much? So that proves they're sinners. He's not talking to the church. Nowhere in the Bible does the Bible ever call a saved person unrighteous. Nowhere in the scripture does God ever call a, a sinner, a saint, nor a saint, a sinner, ever. So the fact that he says to cleanse you from unrighteousness means they have not been cleansed. How many times do you get cleansed from unrighteousness? One time. Not daily. Righteousness is a gift, Paul says. It is not something you do. By all of this I'm saying is not that sin's big, not a big deal, but Jesus is a lot bigger deal than sin. Okay? So, so I'm not saying that go sin, and you, know, and you always get accused of that, and that's just a period of stupid come upon people. You know, well, you're just saying we can live any kind of way and just sin all want to. Well, that's just dumb as dirt. That's just stupid to think that way. I've told you over and over and over, and I, I get wore out with saying it, but I don't know better now. But it's like, a, you know, me and my wife got married, and, and now God, you know, said, death do us part. And she was saying, I'll never leave you, and I said, I'll never leave you. Sickness, health, rich, poor, don't matter. That's what we're really saying. We're entering into a covenant. We're saying we're never going to separate for no reason. People don't mean that, but that's what they say. <laughs> Most don't. Come on now. But, but so, so we go, well, that's a pretty good deal. Sickness, health, richer, poor, better, worse. How I many of like adultery, fornication? That's pretty worse. But what she said to me in the covenant was she'd never leave me even for that. She wouldn't leave me for nothing. 
till death. She said death. So then after, after somebody sitting in the audience, here's that covenant. Here comes a guy running up. Hey, Dale, man, congratulations on your marriage. Now you can go sleep with as many women as you want to. Because she just told you she's not going to leave you. As stupid as that is, as stupid as that statement is, is just how stupid it is for somebody to accuse preachers of grace that now he's saying you can just go sin all you want to. Because what you forget is there's this little thing that's got us up there saying the covenant in the first place that you're forgetting about. It's called love. See, I don't, I don't need your rule book because there's better than a rule book. There's love. I love her. You got kids. I got children. I got grandbabies. There's hundreds of laws, they tell me, written in the Georgia Law Code in regard to your care for your children. You can't leave them in a hot car. They'll lock you up for that. You can't feed them cotton candy three times a day, seven days a week. They'll lock you up and take your kids from you for feeding them cotton candy. Oh, it's getting quiet in here. You can't leave a two-year-old and go to the club and, and find your groove back and leave them in a locked house by themselves, uncared for and undisciplined. They'll lock you up for that, right? There are all kind of laws on the books. But I've never read any of those laws in regard to how I treat my children. Because when I raise my children, I've never, I, there's not a law book you'll find in my house that tells me how to raise kids. But I exceeded the written Georgia Code of Law by leaps and bounds in my relate because I love my kids. In other words, what parent wants to relate to their children by law? Now, you, you got that? Now, why would you think God would be any different? Why would you think God wants to relate to you and have a relationship with you based on law? He never did, never does, never will. God has always been the God of grace and mercy and love and compassion. You, you believe that? God's never desired to do that, no more than you would desire to do that. You wouldn't go, like, Mama, can I have a glass of uh, tea? Well, let me check the law book and see if you can have a glass of tea or not. Ridiculous. But we've got all this religion that's infiltrated our minds and our thoughts and it's hindered us and it's blocked us from a loving relationship with our Father. And God is not angry with any human on the planet. Does that mean that God likes it when they sin? No, because He loves everybody. I've always, it always bothered me, but now I've, I say it boldly. You cannot have unconditional love unless you have unconditional forgiveness. Because if I have unconditional love and then conditional forgiveness, then I'm holding something against you. And my love can't be pure. And yet most of the church will agree and say, you know, God loves everybody unconditionally. And then you tell them and turn around and say, God has also forgiven everybody unconditionally. And they go, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. And they'll take issue with that. You can't have it both ways. To have unconditional love necessitates unconditional forgiveness. And so what did God do? God said, I'm tired of this enmity between me and man. And I will initiate the action that's my part. And I will reconcile the world unto myself. That God was in Christ. That's why I've never believed it. And he even wrote an article against it. Not trying to be some smarty britches. God turned his back on his son. He God so holy he couldn't look upon sin. All that's church religion mess. God never turned his back on Jesus. God never. What kind of dad would that be to turn your back on your son when he needs you more than any time in the, ever? See how quiet it's getting? 
Somebody drag that sacred cow on out of here. I just killed him. How could God, if God was in Christ, if God was in Christ, how could God turn his back on God? God's so holy he can't look upon sin. That's a lie too. When Adam and Eve in the garden, I asked you this last Sunday or two Sundays ago, did they sin? Did they transgress? So God never came back to the planet then. That's what you're telling me. In other words, God's so holy he can't look upon sin. I told you for God to be like, oh, they sin, I can't look upon sin. I'm so holy. It's like a farmer saying, oh, I got cows, but I can't look at their poop. I'm just, I can't do it. A farmer's not shocked what comes out the back end of a cow. He just, he knows how to walk around it, but he's not shocked by it. And God's not shocked by the frailness of humanity and the weakness of flesh. And when Adam and Eve sinned and turned their back upon God and entered into an allegiance with Satan, God still came down in the cool of the evening. And it wasn't God hiding from them because he was so holy. It was them hiding from God. And God went looking for them. They weren't looking for God. They weren't asking God to come. God found them. Adam, where are you? It wasn't because he didn't know where he was. He was just saying, look at you, man. Look at you. That's what this religion and sin does. It will make you hide from God instead of run to God. Now, when I mess up, I don't hide from God. Used to, when I would sin, you know, and I'm not saying that in the terms that I'll never do it again, but I don't have it on my calendar. I always say that. But, but when I sin, when I used to, I would, I, would, I would just, depending on what I judge to be the severity of that sin, I would weep and cry and tell God I'm sorry. And I never told him one time. I would tell him 10, 15, 20 times. If I thought it was something really bad, I would spend the rest of that day in agony, repenting, I called it, confessing, and trying to get God to forgive me. Never really sure that he did. Never really sure when it happened. And if it was really bad, I'd get up the next day and I'd go through that whole regimen again. And I may go a third or fourth or fifth day. And after a while, I would just feel like, well, I just trust that he has and I'll try my best to go on and live for him. What a miserable way to live. What a miserable way. Brother Dale, you said you don't have to confess your sin. You can confess anything you want to to Papa. He's a good daddy. You can talk to him about anything, including your sin. I've never told people, although I've been accused of it, that you don't have to confess your sin. I have told people, and I will say this again clearly, get the tape, okay? get the cassette, whatever it is we put them on now. Uh, get the CD. You do not have to confess your sin in order to be forgiven because you already are. You're already forgiven. Forgiveness is not something that God will do today. Forgiveness is something that God has done 2,000 years ago. Then when people say, well, God, don't forgive me of the future sins. How many of your sins and mine were future on the cross 2,000 years ago? So if God don't forgive the future sins, everybody in this room right here is lost. Because all of mine and your sins were future when Jesus hung on the cross. God didn't forgive of actions and sin. He took away sin, the problem, between us and him. Now the problem we have is death. Jesus didn't say, I have come that they might have forgiveness. Jesus says, I have come that they might have what? Life and have it abundantly, more abundantly. Or one translation says, to the full measure. Well, whose life do you have in you now? It's Christ's life. It's his life. It's eternal life. I know some people try to teach it as temporary eternal. Or, terp or whatever it is. It's like, well, it's eternal, but it's not really eternal because... Oh, wait, you make it eternal. Jesus don't. 
That makes you more powerful than Jesus. We should have put you on the cross. Your eternity is in his life. The wages of sin is, but the gift of God is eternal life. It is life without end. God put, uh, well, brother, I had something just last week again, somebody, well, what about the prodigal son? What if he'd have died in the pig pen? Would he went to hell, Brother Dale? Huh? I said he was a son. Sons don't go to hell. Only sinners. When he left home and got mad with daddy, he was a son. And on the way home, away from daddy, he was a son. And when he was living riotous living and drunkenness and women, he was a son. And when he spent all of his dad's money, he was a son. And he was eating with the hogs, he was a son. God didn't throw no hog pen on him. He built his own hog pen. My prayer for you is that you'll just build you the most nastiest hog pen you can build as quick as you can build it. So that you'll do what he did, come to himself and realize this is stupid. And you'll say, I want to go back to Papa. Not because he didn't have a relationship. And when he comes back, notice that the daddy's not sitting on the porch with his legs crossed. I know you'd come back crawling. I know you'd have to show back up here. I know, you know, he didn't do any of that. In fact, he don't stay on the porch. He runs and meets him, falls upon his neck and kisses him. And then he does the most scandalous thing. Throws a party. He don't even rebuke the kid. He didn't say, like, where's my money? Do you, do you have any of it left? Do you spend it all? Or, he didn't ask him any questions. In fact, the boys done rehearse what he was going to say, and he didn't even let talk. Kill the fatted calf. Here's a robe. Where do you think that robe come from? Because it was the best robe. Daddy did this. Daddy gave him his robe. Daddy gave him his ring. And Daddy put his shoes on his feet. His righteousness became that son's righteousness. His authority became that son's authority. What we used to do in the church, you remember, we have, if we had a good service, everybody would take the shoes off. Uh, we can't stand in the presence of the Lord. You know, and so everybody take out one episode with Moses, and we all got our shoes off because it's holy ground. I don't mean people were, I'm just saying I, we were sincere as we knew how to be then. But if we really knew the grace of God, you'd be putting your shoes on. Because Moses was, the law came through who? Moses. So Moses is, has to take his shoes off because you can't stand before God based on your performance of keeping the law. Because no human has ever been able to keep the law except Jesus. Nobody. And so now Moses has to take his shoes off because when it comes between standing before God, he's a slave to sin. And he is a slave, Paul said, to unrighteousness. But when you're born again, you no longer stand as a barefoot slave that had no shoes. God puts, shod you with peace between you and him. He will never, ever be angry with you. He will never rebuke you. He will never bring up your sins to you. He will only love you. It doesn't mean that he don't care what you do. He don't want you to stick your hand no more than a granddaddy. I tell my grandbaby, so we gotta, don't put your hand in there. Don't put your hand in that fan. Why am I doing that? Because see if they'll obey a rule? No. I don't want them to stick their little fingers in the, in the blades, cut off their ends of their fingers or hurt them or chew them up. They're going to be in pain. They're going to hurt for weeks, maybe even lose some of their fingers. 
So my rebuke, don't do that. It's not because I'm trying to give them a rule to keep. What's it motivated? By my love. Anything that God's ever said to a human is based on that one thing. God doesn't have love. God is love. And so I just want to say to you as I close this thing, God is not, I mean, it sounds like we were in cahoots. I promise you we're not. That made me feel so good when Chuck started talking about the anger, not that, and he, and he sung that song that he just wrote about God loves us. That, you know, God writing to us, say, I love you. Man, if, that is the message. And when I look at knowing how that he and I were raised, and I, and I say one more example. I don't know how he got there. I was thinking while you were talking today, because I hadn't seen you in decades. But I said, listen what's coming out of his mouth. He fits here. He's my brother. He's my grace brother. I don't know what journey he's been on. I don't know what all the turns and twists that got him to come to that revelation of the goodness and the grace of God. But thank God that he came to it. Got the same daddy. Because God is that same daddy. And if you'll understand, and does that mean, Brother Dale, that everybody's for, you know, forgiven? Yes. Listen, does it mean everybody is saved like some people teach? No. To as many as received him. Those that have received the abundance of grace will reign in righteousness. You have to receive this. I don't have time, but Paul says there, he said, the, the free gift is not like the offense. In other words, the offense that Adam did, we all got it on board. I can see it in the brand new little grandbabies. They'll go, ah, mine, hit the other one. You know, whatever. I mean, you, you see sin interwoven in their lives. It just comes, you didn't pray for it, did you? You didn't have to believe God for it. Huh? It just comes on board. But he says the, the gift is not like the offense. The gift is you receive it. You receive it by faith. So this is the thing that I want to leave you with. The word justification and righteousness are the same word. They just translate it differently. But justified means made righteous. So if you can believe that you were made a sinner, therefore you sin. And the reason you sin is because you're, you're dead to, to the things of God. Okay, and so that you have a you have a propensity, you have you 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 have a, a desire for those things that are not of God. But listen to me: when you get born again, life, His life, the Zoe life, floods you. You have the eternal life of God living on the inside of you, and then from that point on, if you will yield to that Spirit, you will walk in the Spirit. And if you walk in the Spirit, you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You won't you won't want those things because that's not who you are any longer. You're still in the earth suit, and there's going to be times, man, you're going to yield to the flesh, and you're going to mess up. But you know what? God is never angry with you, even when you do that. In fact, God is pleased with you. And that's one that's hard for people to go, but I've done a whole teaching on that. that God is pleased with you. What kind of life would you have if you knew that you are God's son or daughter, that God's not angry with you, that he loves you, and not only does he love you, but he's pleased with you? How would your world, how would your day, how would your future be different? I want you to stand with me. I want our ministry team to come, and we're going to give you an opportunity for prayer. If anybody wants prayer, we're always going to provide that opportunity for you to have prayer. You don't have to. We're not going to string it out. But we don't ever want you to leave this campus without knowing that somebody will be up here to pray with you and for you if you desire that. Let's just pray. Father, I thank you that you have reconciled the world to yourself. I thank you that you've promised us in your word and you've even made it so pointed that just like the waters of Noah, you would never 
ever be angry with us nor rebuke us again. That what your apostle Paul told us is that you were in Christ and that you reconciled the sin of the world, not imputing, counting, keeping a record of their trespasses. Lord, I thank you for that amazing good news. Amazing good news. Now, Lord, our problem is not forgiveness because we've already been given that. We don't enjoy the benefit of it until we receive it. But as far as your end, you've already forgiven us. Now, I say to this congregation over this podcast, be reconciled to God then if you're not. You be reconciled to God. How do I do that? Trusting in Jesus and his finished work on the cross. Believing that his blood forgave the world of sin. If it gave the world of sin, guess who's in the, whose sin was in that pile? Yours and mine. And if you'll just believe and trust in the blood of Jesus and his finished work, then you will be given eternal life, his life, the God life inside you. Your spirit will be alive to the things of God. You'll enjoy the benefit of that forgiveness. You'll enjoy the the, the, not a heavy load, but an easy burden that Jesus said he brought. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He won't put nothing heavy upon you. He's not going to put religion upon you. Jesus didn't come to earth to start a religion. He came to give you life. I've come that they have life. And when you yield to that life now that's on the inside of you, sin will increasingly be a less and less of an issue. In fact, you won't even be sin conscious. You'll be so Christ conscious that you won't even be sin conscious. And he will be your focus, and you will look to him. And you are, through him, already an overcomer. And I thank you for that, Father. I thank you for these that have come today. I pray that if there's anybody that's not reconciled to you, let them know that you've already forgiven them. Let them come and receive the free gift of righteousness, right relationship with God through Christ. I pray that in Jesus' name. If you want prayer, I'm going to dismiss the church. You come this way while they go that way, we're down here. I'll be glad to talk with you, meet with you, talk with you about anything. I'm here. And uh, so, church, we love you. God bless you. Hey, listen, listen, listen. Hey, oh, oh, I almost forgot, Chuck. Sorry. Chuck, Selena, their their, uh, merchandise tables out in the vestibule area. Stop by, get CDs. Their new album is out there. And uh, stop by, Chuck, you, you and Selena, y'all can just head that way. And they'll be out there to greet you. Just go by and hug his neck and tell him what a blessing uh, their ministry is. We just only saw a smidgen of it this morning, I assure you. So go by and, and, and see Chuck Day and his wife Selena out there in the uh, vestibule as you go. If you want prayer, you come this way. We'll be, we're down here to meet with you. God bless you, church. We love you.